baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins. I'm Richard Hollingham. And can I just say, listening to that jingle again, Gene Cernan, because one of those quotes is from him, was pretty outrageous when he was landing on the moon. That I'll give it to you quote is Gene Cernan landing on the moon. (laughs) Now you've told me that, I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy it anymore. I'm Sue Nelson. This time we'll be investigating the thorny issue of interplanetary government or how you stop a Martian empire becoming a tyranny. We'll also be looking ahead to the first satellite launch from the UK. And I visit Goonhilly Earth Station in Cornwall to hear how they turned it from near dereliction to a space communications hub, now beaming signals to Mars. Our guest throughout the podcast is Charles Coquel, Professor of Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He's got two books out at the moment, which seems a bit greedy. (laughs) We'll come to the second one a little later on, but we'll begin with interplanetary liberty, building free societies in the cosmos. A welcome, Charles. Hello, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Good. Now, you begin with a quote from, and I can't help saying his name by saying it in song, or Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) Um, And uh, for those who don't know, Alexander Hamilton, um, he's one of the founders of the uh, writing the, the US Constitution. So what's that got to do with space? Well, Alexander Hamilton and his peers, of course, they were not designing a constitution in a country that was completely free of, of human beings. And obviously, there's a lot of uh, ethical discussion we could go into there on, on on the indigenous population. But But they were trying to conceive of a new type of republic. And they were trying to do that without any precedent, at least in North America. They were trying to think of a new way to build a government that try to ameliorate some of the problems of republics in the past that have uh, suffered from tyranny or, or despotisms. They weren't utopians, but what they were trying to do was to forestall some of the problems that have overcome countries in the past that ultimately led to, to tyranny. And so the founding fathers and their ideas on how to build a republic in some ways give us a foundation to think about how we could build free republics in any environment where there is no pre-existing order. And of course, outer space is the canonical example of a place where there's no previous government and you have to start from scratch. Now, you've already mentioned tyranny, uh, and it it was amazing how quickly, really, you introduce the fact that, uh, in your words, space is tyranny-prone, and I love this phrase, (laughs) dictator-friendly. Now, I know we have that in science fiction uh, a lot of the time, but what makes you think that this possibility naturally extends to reality? Yes, outer space is is an interesting environment because, of course, there's nothing out there that you require on a a day-to-day basis that's freely available. There's no atmosphere, or if there is an atmosphere, such as on Mars, it's essentially poisonous. So one thing that you do need on a second-to-second time scale is oxygen. And you have to produce that oxygen gas through a technological process, whether it's extracting it from the atmosphere or from water. And that means that the the gas that you need to breathe to stay alive continuously 
is likely to be under the control of someone else. And the other requirements that you need, such as food and water, are also not naturally available in the environment. Now, of course, you could say the same thing about a desert on the earth. There are deserts on the earth that don't have freely available liquid water or food growing naturally in the environment. But I think it's that element of, of lack of oxygen, that requirement that has no buffer in it. You, can't, you can go without food and water for a certain length of time and maybe plan a revolution if someone's deliberately denied you those things. But if someone denies you oxygen, you're dead in a very short space of time. This does sound like the plot from Total Recall, though. Absolutely. So there's nothing... I don't claim this is a new insight. In fact, science fiction is full of these scenarios of tyranny in space. Robert Heinlein, for example, his, his book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, tells about a, a revolution on the moon caused by a, a dictatorship. What I've tried to do in this book, I suppose, is to examine this with what you might describe as a little bit more sort of academic focus. I've tried to understand using the political philosophy literature that goes back hundreds of years, exactly what are the mechanisms of this tyranny and how we might thwart it. So you might simply say that I've taken a more academic view of something that has already been pointed out by science fiction writers. Now, you go into all this in, in some detail, and I think we'll come on to some of the, the points that you look at. But I've spoken to a lot of, of advocates of interstellar travel, of, of interplanetary exploration, of, of human colonies. And I know we don't like using the word colony anymore on these, on these planets. But often they seem very idealistic uh, to start again. You know, we've made all these mistakes on Earth. We've got a new, fresh start. And whenever that's been tried on Earth, that's gone really badly wrong, that idea of sort of ripping it up and starting again. So, so where do, do you start? I think there's an element of truth in the idea that going into space is a form of liberty. You're escaping thousands of years of entrenched views on the earth. You can set up a new society. And I think that those people who have a, a very romantic view of space settlement tend to focus on that part of it. And in that case, as I say, I think they, they have something to say about the opportunities that space offers for new forms of politics and culture. My focus has been on, I think, a realistic part of that expansion into space, which is the highly confined environments that tend to push society towards tyranny. And that doesn't mean to say that tyranny is inevitable. It would be wonderful if we do form near utopias in space. And congratulations to anyone who manages to do that. I think my view, and going back to the founding fathers of the US, is that you should always assume the worst of humanity and build a political system around that. That's not a cynicism. It's just that if you think about the worst possible political outcomes in space, then you're ready to take them on. You build the checks and balances into the system that allow you to forestall those problems. If they don't happen, that's excellent. If they do happen, you've thought about them. That's what the founding fathers tried to do in conceiving of the US Republic and the checks and balances in that system of government. And I think that's what we have to do in space. I suppose the trick is that you've got to keep this going through generations, haven't you? Because you can imagine the first group that go, they have their ideals, they have their their structure of government or, or governance, but it's their children and their children's children and how you maintain that. Because we, we've seen, well, I mean, if you take take the US, the, the political difficulties, particularly in, in recent years, of really pushing the constitution to it to its very limits and, and keep, it's just maintaining that over over generations is the is the challenge yes and it's a very very tough thing to do building 
essentially free societies requires all sorts of different levers to be pulled. You need a judicial system that treats people fairly. That's not an easy thing to construct. You need checks and balances in the executive branch of government so you don't end up being tyrannized by a single individual. You need an education system that allows people to understand the way the political system works. It's very easy to brutalize people. Tyranny is a very easy thing to achieve in any society. You simply tell people what to do. If they disagree with them, you put them in prison or, or you do worse. You shoot them, for example. Uh, this is a trivial thing to organize a, a human society around. To build a society where there are structures of, of human freedom and respect for those ideas of of political, economic, and legal liberties is hard work. And it's not just hard work at any point in time. As you rightly say, this takes generations to achieve, and it has to be maintained over generations. Any country that's had liberty or, or reasonably good systems of government for hundreds of years can collapse into dictatorship. There's plenty of examples of that throughout human history. So I think that more than anything, not just the technical structures of government, but the culture of a society has to embrace freedom. Liberty lies in the hearts of, of men and women, not just in the constitution they construct. People have to really relish the ideas of, of freedom and be willing to defend them beyond merely the, as I say, the technical means by which they construct a government. The problem is, though, it's a rich man's world, and I don't use the word man lightly because uh, the number of billionaires are, pr are predominantly male. How do you stop a sort of Darth Vader dictator in space, effectively, when the world, Earth, is filled with the equivalent. And, you know, we, we've already discussed about, say, air or oxygen on, on, on Mars, whoever controls that, you know, is in, is in a very powerful position. We have the same on Earth in terms of who controls gas or energy or, or, or things like that. Is not, while we obviously intellectually and academically want future colonization of planets and, and astronomical bodies to be filled with this sort of liberty and, and this ideal isn't the reality that it will belong to the tech billionaires. I don't think that's preordained. I think everything that you've just said is, is completely true that you have these billionaires, they have access to vast quantities of resources and they can control things. And as on Earth, there's no guarantee of freedoms, and these things are easily dissolved. So it's easy to sit here and say, well, I want to build free societies in space, but the reality may be very different. But what can you say to that other than we have to do our best to prevent it? And one of the ways that you can try and prevent it is to think about it. And I'm not saying that academics can stop a determined dictator from being successful in space as on Earth, but certainly political philosophy, for example, has played a very strong role in putting forward the ideas of freedom and liberty on the Earth from John Locke through to modern people like Isaiah Berlin, uh, Frederick Hayek, and many other people, who, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, who have fought the side of, of freedom and tried to bring forward the ideas that ultimately have become inculcated into our culture. And to be slightly factious about it, it's one of the reasons why I write books on interplanetary liberty. I wouldn't be so grandiose as to claim that anyone's going to read them or take notice of them. But if we don't write books thinking about how to make free societies in space, we're almost certainly not going to get there. So I don't think that liberty is assured in space. I think the possibility of dictatorship is very likely. But I'm also not someone who simply accepts the idea that we should 
um, surrender to the idea of the inevitability of tech billionaires taking over space and setting up despotisms which they essentially control. I don't think that's an inevitable outcome. If we think about it enough, and we think about it early enough, and the particular conditions in space and the challenges to freedom, I don't see why we can't build societies where there is some modicum of liberty and we, we successfully build societies where that's inculcated into, into the political systems and also the culture of those societies. I love that we're discussing political theory on space podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Can you paint us a picture though? Because we've talked, we've talked, we've been perhaps very negative in our in our questioning. Uh, paint Challenging, us a, I think you'll find. <laughs> <laughs> um, paint us a picture then of, of how it could work. Of this, you know, of maybe you know Mars City in twenty seventy or something. I, I think it will change over time. So to begin with, these populations are going to be small. And one way in which you can try and understand how these systems could work. And one of the things I've done for the last few years is go and look at the participatory democracies on the small islands off the coast of Scotland, not quite as extreme as Mars. But there you have an island such as the Isle of Egg, 100 people living in semi-isolation, but connected with the mainland, just like a settlement on the moon or Mars might be connected materially with the earth. And there you have a successful participatory democracy. Now, like the ancient Athenians who understood that participatory democracy can collapse into the rule of the mob, they have a a sort of uh, primitive executive branch that takes day-to-day decisions. But large-scale decisions on society are taken by the whole community who can gather in the community hall. So I would see that in the early stages, one would have some sort of participatory democracy, but with an executive function to stop it collapsing into a sort of ancient Athenian rabble. And then as that society grows, it may become more representative. I think one of the problems you have in space is economic isolation. So I think that it's important to have trade routes in the solar system, in other words, reliable spacecraft that can move goods and people back and forth from any settlement to the Earth. Because as soon as you have economic isolation, you then have problems such as rationing of crucial resources, control over the economic system that's necessary to prevent some sort of uh, catastrophe or collapse in the economic conditions. So economic isolation can lead to political tyranny. So you have to try and create as much economic productivity as early as possible. So economic liberty and, and political liberty are, if you like, conjoined, and you need to try and build those up. And then as you construct this society, perhaps you start to fragment the the means of management into what we would recognize on earth as as an executive branch and a legislative branch and a judiciary, a separation of powers that that reduces the chance of any one branch of government controlling the settlement. So again, these things are not new. So we sort of get back to Alexander Alexander Hamilton again. Yes, exactly. And and I think that, again, I would say that none of what I'm saying is particularly original. I think that the mechanisms that we've learned over thousands of years on the earth from early societies, as I say, right the way through the participatory democracy of Athens through to the more complex representative democracies we have on the earth today. All of these things have lessons for space. There's nothing new about it. It's just, I think, the intensity of the potential for tyranny in space is much greater than on earth. So we're going to have to work at this even harder than we've had to do on the earth. And as you say, even on the earth, it's difficult. But you're right, because what, you know, some of the issues that certain countries are having now while those foundations that we many countries have ended up with, you know, they're still not perfect, but they're working reasonably well to create a, a democracy. 
where there are issues and failures and fears are when those boundaries and those checks and balances are eroded. Exactly. And those checks and balances uh, can only remain in place if the population also value the ideas of liberty. It comes back to liberty lies in the heart. And that's part of what the education system needs to do. You have the best. And this is different, liberty different from libertarianism here as well. Yes. I mean, libertarians have a view of minimizing the state. Uh, liberty doesn't necessarily, the, the ideas of freedom don't necessarily require that people believe in a minimal state. I happen to think that, uh, that state power is one of the, the greatest threats to to individual uh, freedoms and, of course, one of the, the, the wellsprings of some of the, the greatest evils that have been committed by human societies. But I don't necessarily believe, that, you don't have to therefore believe that states absolutely have to be minimized as a libertarian would believe. When I talk about liberty, I'm talking about being able to criticize the people who rule over you without being the fear of being arrested or being shot, the ideas of freedom of conscience, being able to think about the, the religions and ideas that you may or may not have, being able to assemble with other human beings to do the things that you enjoy doing, being able to discuss political ideas, being able to um, have a free press and be able to get those ideas out into the community. I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say those things are universally good because we can argue about them. But I think most human beings would agree with the idea that it has been an advance in human organization to build societies where people can express their ideas with other human beings without the threat of being killed, essentially, to put it as, as simply as possible. Or cancelled. Yes, exactly. Or cancelled. Of course, that's a very... <laughs> that's Isn't a very, it? Yeah. Let's not go down. Yeah, that's very controversial. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's equally interesting because you're right. If you don't, if you can't talk and express, then it's, it's very dangerous. And, and I think that talking about Western ideas being universal is an extremely dangerous road to go down. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. But I, but I do think that there are ideas about the freedom of human beings not to be coerced and tyrannized by the people that rule over them that, that do represent some objective advance in our quality of life and in the uh, enjoyment that we can take in existing without fear. And these ideas, I think, are worthy of being projected into space. And of course, these ideas of liberty are always open to discussion. That's one of the fun things about having a discussion exactly like this. It's, it's interesting to talk about what we mean by liberty. But I think that that conversation must happen if we're to avoid societies in space that are essentially slave states, people living in extreme conditions on another planetary body where the oxygen is controlled by someone else, as you say, a little bit like the, that uh, film, classic film, Total Recall. Total Recall, the, uh, yeah. group of people being having their oxygen controlled uh, by a tyrant. Th this is the worst outcome of extraterrestrial settlements. And I think one of the reasons why we want to avoid this is because imagine living on the Earth where the majority of people are going to be living for the foreseeable future, looking up into the night sky, knowing that, that the sky is filled with tyrannies. So tyranny in space can have a cooling effect on democracies and liberty on the earth and it doesn't require vast numbers of people in space to have that cooling effect the mere presence of a small group of people pushing illiberal regimes the rebellion maybe with <laughs> it's, it's, I've, I've gone into star wars mode now <laughs> this is it's so great though to discuss all this and you're right it does need to be thought through so that we don't repeat mistakes 
Exactly. And, and, you know, just having conversations like this is just part of the healthy debate. Whether we manage to forestall tyrannies is another matter. But having discussions like this maybe makes people think about it. And perhaps people out there who haven't thought about this in, you know, whether they don't have to be people in space, law and politics, it can just be members of the public with an interest in space can start discussing these things. The more discussion there is, of course, the more people become aware of, well, space isn't a utopia. It's not just an escape from the earth and building these wonderful societies where all of our woes are banished, a little bit like Star Trek. We're going to take all of our problems with us. And it's a good idea to think about what those problems have been and whether we can prevent them from simply being repeated. Well, I do suspect quite strongly that our listeners who are all fans and interested in this space has probably sparked up a number of conversations that will go on after they've listened to this podcast. So we've been talking about interplanetary liberty, building free societies in the cosmos with Charles Kakel. Charles, do stay with us. I am very pleased to say that the UK Space Agency is once again kindly supporting the podcast, which means we can feature even more UK missions. And here's one of the biggest things to happen in years. The UK will soon become the first country to launch satellites into space from Europe. Virgin Orbit's converted 747 Cosmic Girl will be taking off from Newquay in Cornwall with Launcher One, carrying at least six satellites. Five, four, three, two, one. Release, release, release. Good light. I've recently been in Cornwall to see the new spaceport at Newquay and there's a a lot more to it than I was expecting. Is there more? Because obviously I went pre-pandemic and it was basically an airport with a really nice poster saying something like sun, sea, surf and space. Well, that's still there. Ah, good. But at the other end of the runway from Newquay Airport, which is tiny, is a large hangar and within that there's a sizable clean room with a crane. That's where they're going to do the oh, satellite integration. Yeah. And most excitingly, outside this, I mean, it's a proper big hangar, substantial yeah. hangar. Outside, got to go on the apron. Had to sign lots of bits of paper and had to put lots of high-vis gear on to do that. And painted on the concrete on the apron, it's 747. So that's where Cosmic Girl, that's that's where the 747 is going to be uh, standing, waiting for action. Well, I've been speaking to Matt Archer, Director for the UK Space Flight Programme. The programme was conceived back in 2017 as an idea. And, you know, after five years' worth of effort both in building regulations to support launch but also working with Virgin Orbit, Spaceport Cornwall and others to kind of say here's the infrastructure needed to make launch happen. Yeah it's very exciting to be at the end point and saying here is going to be the UK's first launch in over 50 years. So yeah very exciting. And is there the demand there? I mean you filled this first launcher but is there the ongoing demand to fill subsequent launches, to to keep launching satellites from Cornwall. And these are small satellites. I mean, they're all CubeSat-type satellites, so, you know, less than a metre in length, 30 centimetres wide or so. Yeah, so for the first launch, most of the payloads, the satellites going up, are all the size of a shoebox, roughly. It's part of a, a symbol of what's coming. So we've seen demand really start to pick up over the last sort of six to nine months or so. But actually, the long-term market's really healthy. So worldwide launch is worth about 15 billion euro, 15 million dollars by the end of the decade. 
and the UK can attempt to access about a third of that. So again, a really important market for us to aim into. So yeah, really confident that the market will be sustainable in the longer term. So you've got this first launch coming up in the next well, month or couple of months from Cornwall. Yeah. How's it looking with Scotland? Because there are two, well, there's, there's Sutherland, so furthest tip of Scotland, then you've got the launch as well from, from Shetland. There's a lot to do there. I mean, that's starting from scratch, essentially. It's building the rocket, building the launch pad, all that. Where, where are we at with all that? Yeah, so I'll start with Space Hub Sutherland. So it's got planned permission for up to 12 launches a year. It's beginning its construction work nearby, so it's putting in power infrastructure and internet cables ready for site access. And they'll then begin construction later on this year. So they're aiming to have a spaceport ready and operational for a launch next year. And then for Saxavord, they've already um, started pouring concrete, both for roads and on their launch pads, making good progress up there. And again, hoping to have launches away from 2023. Uh, and these would be UK-built launchers as well, or not necessarily? They, could, they, they don't have to be designed for a specific <coughs> launcher? No, so ultimately there are two main companies in the UK base. So Orbex are an SME startup building their prime vehicle for use at Space Hub Sutherland. Skyrora, uh, with their manufacturing facility in Glasgow, are looking to launch from Saxaboard Spaceport in Shetland. But again, there are lots of other launch companies, whether they are US or European ones, looking to use those facilities. So the, the pads that they build to launch from will be of a certain size and support rockets of that class. So for Space Hub Sutherland, it will take a rocket up to about 300 kilos as a maximum payload, whereas Saxavord are building it capable of taking about one, one and a half tonnes. Slightly bigger facility gives you a broader base on which to kind of sell to kind of clients. So these are much bigger satellites than necessarily they... Because you look at the launcher that's underneath um, the 747, um, yeah. the Virgin one, it's small. You can only fit small satellites and you could fit one medium-sized satellite in. But here you're talking about you could actually fit some of the larger, chunkier satellites that the UK and other countries manufacture. Yes, not the very largest. But yes, yeah, certainly, so for ABL space systems who are looking to launch from Saxavord, their vehicle can take up to about 1, 1. 1.3 tonnes, depending on its configuration and performance. That gives you a rough size of about 3 metres by a metre square. So it's a fairly chunky um, satellite, could take up to a tonne as a single load. Although the vast majority of demand we expect, and increasingly in the marketplace, is small satellites. Partly that's just... Uh, a trend of technology gets smaller and more efficient, but equally it allows smaller operators to build a capability and get it into space quickly and then scale out from there. So we very much see small satellites as probably the primary market for the UK. And you touched on the orbits, but the point is you go up from Scotland, you, you're basically going over the pole. You're going yep. north over the pole and then into orbit that way. Yes, absolutely. So primarily for Scottish spaceports, they'll go north within a few degrees. So again, there are some times where it will overfly territories of Iceland or Faroe Islands or close to Norway, which is why we've secured international agreements to enable that. But principally, they want to be able to access a regular orbit that, for things like Earth observation, that you can take an image in a certain location at a certain time every day, or equally do multiple passes every day. So it gives you a better 
a better service to be able to say, right, we can get regular imagery of different parts of the planet very quickly. Now, in this podcast, in Space Bottoms, we're always very excited about anything that's launched into space. Another podcast that we make is the Supermassive podcast, which is the astronomy podcast. They are less excited, astronomers, about lots of stuff being launched into space. The, The problem with increased debris, the problem with just lots of satellites, shiny satellites in space i mean is is that a concern do we need more launches um there's kind of two two drivers there so we work a lot with astronomical society and others to make sure that we minimize the impact of satellites i know there was a quite classic case where elon Musk made some of his satellites very shiny and therefore quite visible to a lot of people and therefore repainted them to say okay how do we produce satellites that are if you like ensuring that it's still usable for all users and that's the same for debris removal and other services is we know that for the long-term sustainability of space we've got to keep that available and remove old uh, space debris and for us we do that through our licensing approach so you've got to have a plan to deorbit your satellite within 25 years but it also means for us there will always be demand for launches. So satellites only have a natural lifespan, some very short, so some three, five, seven years, others much longer, but principally they will need replacing. So you look at companies like SpaceX, OneWeb, others, they will all look to replenish their constellation over time. So there'll always be that demand for launches and there'll always be demand for satellites given how important it is to many of the functions that we use day to day, whether it's our mobile phones for GPS or servicing maps or earth observation imagery and many other uses space usage will continue to grow i think it offers a new dimension for us to offer services to different parts of the world so you look at starlink bombweb offering telecommunication services to previously kind of communities that have been disconnected from the internet and that's a massive improvement in terms of leaping forward in technology we just need to be cognizant of the impacts that we have on the night sky and how we support a multi-user environment. So I suppose you're saying it's responsible use of space. I, I mean, I hate the word sustainable, but this is it's, maybe responsible is a better way of yeah. uh, putting it. We, we have to manage the space. There's always going to be lots of satellites and there's always going to be the demand for them. But the way we go about doing that, making sure that we avoid future collisions and likewise making them in a way that doesn't interfere with the night sky in the same way that sort of anything that's reflective would do, it is a massive opportunity. I think everyone that I've spoken to in the sector is cognizant of that. So many of them work with kind of design specialists and other parts of industry and societies to say, look, let's make sure this isn't impacting your community in an adverse way. Actually, what we want to achieve is this, but let's do so in a responsible way. And that's how we want to kind of see it continue. And I'm sure over time we're leading that agenda with the UN and elsewhere to say, well, look, let's make all of all of the world's satellites operate in that way, and in particular avoiding kind of further anti-satellite tests, I think is important. What about tourism then, when it comes to these, these launches? Everyone loves a launch. I have plenty of Facebook friends in the US who live in Florida and are always you know, putting up pictures of the latest SpaceX launch or everyone waiting for Artemis, all these you know, pictures. There is a huge tourism industry on the space coast in Florida, particularly yeah. around, around launch. Is there a potential here or is it just going to be people like me who will trek up to the top of Scotland so I can go and see the rocket? I think it'll be a mix. We should bear in mind that kind of 
our rockets certainly aren't as big as, say, the Artemis launch or big SpaceX launches. They don't have the same power or impact, which doesn't mean, say, they're not going to be very exciting, because they are. They are still big rockets. They are still 20, 30 metres tall, and they will sound amazing when they go. And therefore, you will always get enthusiasts that want to see that. And there'll also be a sense of national pride for some. It's the first time we've done it in 50 years. But it doesn't have the same gravitas or national endeavour that the early sort of 1950s, 60s missions would have had that sort of generated that interest in launch as it does in the US. I still think we'll see some tourism, but it's not been the main focus of why we created the launch programme. But certainly we are seeing that interest in the first launches to say, actually, this is a major achievement. It is a signal of kind of local growth, revival, kind of high-tech jobs. And I'm sure many people will come out to support their local communities in that success. And yeah, we'll have to see how it grows. But fingers crossed, people will enjoy it when it comes. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that you know, this is you know, the coolest job to be in. It's not very often you get to say that I'm making launch happen. And yeah, it is one that we will be very proud when we get there in terms of supporting industry and lots of partners to say, yeah, we've got the first launch away. Matt Archer, the director at the UK Space Agency for the Space Flight Programme. And still to come, we'll hear from my visit to Goonhilly Earth Station, which is also part of the launch programme. I got to go up a, a big satellite dish, which is all very exciting. Yes, well, well I've, I've done that already, so I'm just not impressed. It's I'm still afraid. exciting. It is exciting. You can do it any it number fun. of times. I've done it before. I'll yeah, do it again. It is good. Yeah. Um, actually, I've, I, I don't really remember. I've walked inside the... Jodrell Bank radio telescope dish in Manchester. That was so cool. And I took photos on my mobile phone and then left my mobile phone on the train. So I've not got any well, proof, isn't it? May, may not have happened. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, well, if we're going to talk about going on to dishes, yeah. I, of course, went on the <gasps> dish in Australia. Parks. At Parks. Ah, oh, yeah. Where they... Uh, that I was. I was a bit jealous of you. <laughs> they communicated with Apollo 11 yeah. on the moon and where the film, a great film, by the way, if you've not seen the film. Oh, the Dish, yeah. really, is, really lovely film. Brilliant. Really lovely film. But let's, um, let's go back to Cornwall um, now. Charles, you're still um, with us hearing us rabbiting on there about dishes we've stood in and who's jealous <laughs> of what one. Um, obviously, new rockets being built in Scotland and then launches from Scotland. You're at the University of Edinburgh. And what does all this activity in space mean for Scotland and yourself, obviously? I think it's all very exciting and it means a lot uh, to me and, of course, uh, to Scotland and, and the whole of the UK. Being able to launch satellites into space means that, of course, the UK will have a greater role in, in space exploration and settlement. It's one thing to build satellites. It's uh, another thing to be able to launch them and to be able to have that access to space, even if it's not human access, robotic access to space. It makes us a bigger player on the stage of long-term exploration and settlement. So I think that's very key. Scientifically, it's very exciting because it offers us new ways of getting experiments into space. I had an experiment that flew to space station. It took me 10 years from writing that proposal to fly that experiment. And that's because it's, it was very difficult to do. Only just 10 years ago, you had to get a flight on SpaceX. You had to organize it through the European Space Agency. And of course, all that is still, is still important. But the more players there are, the more people launching into space 
the more possibilities there are for launching scientific experiments. And that's exciting for a scientist because it means you don't necessarily have to wait for 10 years to fly your experiment. Maybe I can drive my car up to the Shetlands, deliver my experiment out of the boot of the car, fly it into space, and it'll come back a month later or so, and I can get the results from that experiment. So that's a, a, a rather flippant thing to say, but there's no reason why that shouldn't become a reality. It's sort of a game changer, really, for space yes, is. scientists, isn't it? For, for UK space scientists. It just makes uh, you know more, more opportunities to fly things and get experiments into space, and that just makes it possible for people to to think about space experiments more often. So rather than, I'm going to do one of these experiments once every 10 years, suddenly you can become a you know, full-time space scientist launching experiments all the time. So, so it opens up really exciting possibilities for scientists, not least, of course, beefing up um, Britain's capability of doing science and technology in space in the process. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist. Do get in touch in all the usual ways, you know, telegraph, carrier pigeon, telex, fax, or you can write us a letter. Mermaid. So I've been reading lots of books about mermaids recently and all that row about the Do they deliver the letters? Um, I reckon mermaids can do any, anything they want. In a bottle. Well, owls. In a bottle. I didn't mention owls. Owls, yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing Duolingo. I actually know, I just thought this is a ludicrous bit of vocab to learn. Un chouette. So that's an, an owl. owl. Well, so you did come straight Stuart. away. It's coming <laughs> yes, useful. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, if you can, if you prefer, you can uh, use social media or email. Uh, we're, so old fashioned. Yes. So old fashioned. <laughs> Podcast at spaceboffins.com. Um, Charles, before uh, you go, we wanted to mention your other book, Taxi from Another Planet. Um, this sounds just. I was going to say crazy, but that's probably a bit rude. But I love it. It's based on your conversations with taxi drivers. That's right. I was sitting in a taxi in 2016 and the taxi driver, we got into this conversation about uh, life in the universe. It sometimes happens in taxis. And he said, um, do you think there are alien taxi drivers? And I, just love that. I love that question. <laughs> it's a fantastic Great. question. Exactly. Because it gets from, you know, it's basically asking, what is the inevitability of the origin of life, it turning into complex life and then turning into intelligence and that intelligence coming up with economics to even think about being a taxi driver. So everything is included in that question, are there alien taxi drivers? And I thought, I wonder what other questions taxi drivers have about life in the universe. So I, every taxi I went in, whether it was at a conference or to the UK Space Agency to do some grant reviewing, I deliberately started up conversations about life in the universe, and not just aliens. You know, why are we going into space? What will the politics be like, like in space? What's the purpose of life? I, I tried every angle on the whole idea of, of life and us in the universe, and then I wrote these essays, and the book is essentially 18 essays on these various conversations with taxi drivers. It's, it, was, it was such fun to write it, one of the most fun things I've done. Uh, there's another question here that I, I again these extraordinary questions that they're, they're really thoughtful questions are we exhibits in an alien zoo <laughs> yes so this is this is this <laughs> question of why don't we see aliens landing in princess street gardens in edinburgh tasting some haggis and taking off again that might sound like a strange question but if you think about where we've come in a hundred years from horse and cart through to spacecraft landing on the moon and going out to the outer solar system. Now imagine a civilization a million years older than us. So the question is, if, if there are civilizations out there, surely some of them are older, surely they would be regularly visiting the Earth. And Fermi, uh, Enrico Fermi, the physicist, he was not the first person to ask this question, but he, he memorably asked, where are the aliens? If there are older civilizations, where are they? And why don't they visit us? 
that's an interesting question. They're, one obvious answer is that they're just not out there. Another, Another one is they're is, already here. They're already here watching <laughs> us like a zoo. <laughs> Excellent. Also, it could, could be that they did go to uh, Edinburgh, had a taste of the haggis, weren't that fussed. And uh, and left again, and have never come back. Yeah, I've seen some people in Glasgow look a bit like space aliens. Glasgow on a Friday. Glasgow on a Friday night. Yeah. Whoa! No, we, we we visit. We visit. We love. We love Scotland. We visit Edinburgh and Glasgow fairly recently, and uh, we do like the way they throw themselves into a night out. Shall <laughs> we do, say? Yeah. And we actually we do, do like haggis <laughs> as well. But we know it's not everyone's cup of tea. But we we like the way you can have it with a cooked breakfast. What's interesting about this? Because a lot of people. I know. And I like chatting with taxi drivers. I usually try and chat with taxi drivers. I, I, my conversations, though, are normally about why they haven't vaccinated. So I'm quite envious of your conversations. <laughs> but I, I know some people actively avoid any conversation with the taxi driver. They just hate it. They just hate that taxi driver. But you've sought out these, these conversations. Yes, I did. I mean, I don't normally deliberately start conversations with taxi drivers, particularly about work. But once I had this first conversation and I realised there was a book in it, I thought... You know, this is a really fun... I'm going to monetize this. I'm going to monetize these journeys. I thought, well, I just thought, you know, this is a really good mechanism for getting this out to the public because taxi drivers are connected into the mind of the public. They know what questions are interesting to everyday people. So I thought this is a really good way of getting at the questions that non-academics are interested in. So I did deliberately from that point on start trying to trigger conversations about life in the universe and find it's a, out it's a brilliant what it idea and i'm totally i mean i i love i mean richard will vouch for this often i will be outside the house in the car even though the ca- taxi has arrived and we sit there chatting <laughs> for about 20 minutes before i come inside and it can be on anything often it's say recently it's been a lot about vaccination but it can also be about religion it's been about science it's been about the pandemic it's been just uh, and it is great as it's a uh, yes it's a massive source because they you know let's face it you've got people who are meeting everyone yes. from all walks of life every day and if they're interested in people and most of them are they've got a vast store of opinions and information they've gleaned you know during their trips and things and they want to discuss it with you so yeah it's a, a brilliant idea very very different in tone from from your other book yes i suppose it is actually <laughs> it's more frivolous but fun but actually i think you know reaches a, a, a greater number of subjects the interplay yeah, different people book is, is really yeah. quite sort of focused on one particular thing well, that's great. But Charles Cockerell, thank you very much for joining us on the Space Boffins no, podcast. thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, as promised, we head to Goonhilly Earth Station next, which when you go there, it just feels like it's situated at the end of the world, although it's really only the southwest tip of Cornwall. Uh, the rural site's dotted with satellite dishes, including an enormous 32-metre wide antenna, and it also has a newly fitted out control room, which looks like a proper control room. Uh, again, like a proper I have been, I have Houston, been there. <laughs> proper Houston-esque <laughs> control room. Well, Goonhilly has a fine heritage. In 1962, it received the first transatlantic TV signal via the Telstar satellite. You've sung Hamilton. Do you want to sing Telstar now? Oh, I'm, oh, oh that's... It's more a hum, isn't it? Mm. And it broadcast the 1969 Apollo moon landing to the world. Frerichs. 
one small... <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay. Yeah. Ten years ago, though, Goon Hilly was facing dereliction until a team of engineers turned it round. Now it's communicating with Mars. I'm Ian Jones. I'm the CEO at Goon Hilly Earth Station. Ian, you couldn't have brought me to a better location on the site here at Goon Hilly. We've got a view over all the other antennas pointing in, in various directions and this incredible, beautiful Cornish landscape around us. But we are underneath a 32 metre wide dish, which is probably, we reckon, about eight storeys above us. It's sort of making you giddy looking up at, looking up at this. And this is your deep space antenna. So this is pointing out, well, right now it's sort of in safe mode, but it, it can point out right to Mars, to the moon, to, to beyond. Just tell me, though, the backstory of this, because it wasn't conceived as a deep space antenna at all. No, indeed. It was uh, originally built in uh, 1984 as a communications antenna, and it transmitted TV pictures around the world. So it's one of its very first jobs was uh, to transmit live aid to 1.8 billion people around the world. But these antennas were, were really needed back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when uh, commercial communication satellites weren't as powerful as they are now. So you needed a 32-metre-wide dish just to relay what from from London, uh, it was where was it, Philadelphia, where was the other... That, that's right, it was yeah. uh, Wembley Stadium to, uh, to Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, you need something like this just to get back up, to get the signal up to geostationary orbit, bounce it around and bounce it around the Earth. But now you can use this to, to communicate with the Moon and Mars. Well, exactly, and what happened was that uh, satellites became more powerful, the industry became much more mature, and you can see, looking around Greenhilly, we've got these uh, you know, different-sized antennas, and so the communication satellite world really shrunk down, and so you can you know, transmit TV pictures uh, around the world now using a five, six, seven-metre antenna. And so these huge old antennas, largely around the world, became redundant. And that was really part of the reason that there was a sort of change in heart and change in plan at Goonhilly. And keeping these big structures operational and maintained was not commercially competitive if you were going to stay in the, the TV uplink business. It's quite disappointing to hear that because it's a beautiful object. It's a beautiful engineering with the, the intricate sort of matrix, really, of, of, of steel supporting the, the dish itself, and then the mechanism, the, even the, the motors that can rotate it around. I mean, it, it's lovely. It's fabulous, isn't it? And, and uh, you know, I'm a, an electronic engineer, but uh, just looking at the mechanical engineering of it, we need to keep the surface accuracy of the, of the main dish accurate to about a millimetre or so across that uh, 32 metres and it needs to do that in all uh, weathers in high wind and it's incredibly uh, strong structure but also you know for the it weighs 410 tonnes but you know given what the, the task that it needs to do it's, it's just an amazing piece of mechanical structure. Uh, and talk me through that transition then from live aid broadcasting you know building a dish like this to communicate around the world in 1984 to this place really 10 years ago or so it was heading for dereliction it, it was and the plan was to actually demolish this particular antenna because it would otherwise if it hadn't been brought back into use then uh, you know it would just cost money to maintain a dish that was not commercially uh, active and so 
when I came to, to when I heard that uh, Green Hilly was going to be closed down, I sort of took another look at it really and thought, well, you could use these big antennas to commercialise deep space communications. And so it was a bit of a quest, but that quest has, has turned out now that we've, we've been working very closely with the European Space Agency for the last four years, and we've completely refurbished this antenna, and now it's in use by space agencies around the world to communicate with their spacecraft. So, you know, this is in maintenance mode at the moment. In fact, there's an engineer uh, just behind us working on the, the motors right now. But when this is active, you are receiving signals on a near daily basis from, from uh, Mars Express in orbit around Mars. Yes, indeed. And uh, so when we finish the, the maintenance program, which we're, we're doing because we're, we're getting ready for, for uh, some, some big activity later on in the month. But yeah, we'll be operational again this afternoon. And uh, so, yes, the antenna is... Uh, just so active every day it might be doing one or two different uh, support missions for for space agencies we're supporting mars express obviously in orbit around mars also a, a spacecraft called integral which is in a very highly elliptical orbit around the earth which goes right way above the north pole to about twice the geostationary distance uh, and we're also supporting another european space mission called gaia uh, which is very close to where the James Webb telescope is uh, is located. Now, I keep getting distracted by what you're saying because this is looming above us. It's very difficult not to look at all the time. Let's talk about Artemis then. So uh, you've got this uh, Artemis 1, which is the uncrewed mission, but it's going to release spacecraft as well. That's right. So it's carrying a number of CubeSats that have been developed by different organisations around the world. And, of course, these CubeSats are uh, much smaller spacecraft. They rely on uh, much smaller solar panels and smaller battery packs, and not, not as powerful as the, as the big spacecraft. And, of course, being small as well, they have tiny antennas. So you'd need a huge antenna like Green Hilly 6 to be able to support that. So we've been asked to look after these uh, spacecraft as they're released on the way to the moon. Now, of course, this is the most impressive bit, the, the dish itself, which is you know, this, this great grey structure uh, above our heads. But we can go down inside to the control room. And although this predominantly was built in 1984, what you've got in the control room is very much up to date. Now, if the exterior decor can best be described as 80s utilitarian, uh, we're very much looking at the 21st century, certainly in the centre of, of this room, with you've got some lovely silver ducting, which is your uh, cooling system, and, you know, brand new electronics cabinets right in the centre of this room. That's right. I mean, we literally started from taking all of the old equipment out, the floors, every piece of wire that was in here beforehand and we've rebuilt the whole system up again from scratch to the latest standards of the European Space Agency and that means now that we are uh, essentially part of the European Space Agency's S-Track Deep Space Network and NASA's uh, Deep Space Network so we have a, a designated sort of antenna number on the, on the Deep Space Network. I'm a little disappointed, I have to say, that there aren't any big knobs and dials that manoeuvre the, the dish around. Yeah, we used to have this fantastic array of, uh, of buttons and, and gizmos that would help us move the, move the dish. That's, of course, all being computerised these days. What's the potential then? I mean, you're supporting um, 
Artemis 1 mission and these, particularly these, these CubeSats, these, these various missions, various satellites being launched from, from that, is the potential to support long-term lunar exploration and even Mars exploration? At the present time, the missions are few and far between, especially to the Moon. So Artemis is really the vanguard of what is going to be uh, an accelerating program uh, and maybe as many as 300 missions to the Moon over the next 15 years or so. So we see this market as uh, very early days at the, at the moment, but we're here with this great foothold, uh, but it's going to expand very rapidly. It's quite a visionary step 10 years ago to think we've got this enormous piece of infrastructure that's now redundant, that's going to be demolished, and we'll probably serve a, you know, get a pretty good scrap value from it to think, well, we could turn this into a deep space antenna. I think um, maybe that characterizes people in the space sector. <laughs> we, we, I think we have to... Um, maybe gamble was the better word. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we have to um, be ambitious uh, and ever hopeful and optimistic that, that, that these programs are, are going to take place. It seems like an uphill battle sometimes, uh, and, uh, but for, for those of us in the industry, you know, we have kept plugging away, we have kept on developing the technology. And it is, it's in demand around the world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Ian Jones, CEO of Goon Hilly. Uh, sadly, the site's no longer open to the public. It used to be a, had a visitor centre and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, they do, though, hold uh, special events there. So if you get the chance, do seize it to, that, to go that's in. that actually shows that it's doing well. Yeah, because well, it's doing stuff all, all the time. Because it's actually doing yeah, space science. It's a secure and, yeah. site communicating yeah. around the world and, and deep space. I should also add that uh, Goon Hilly is involved in Launch UK. They've built the mobile satellite tracking stations to follow the satellites uh, in orbit. Great stuff. Well, I'll have to go back now um, to to see it for myself and see it. And I, I do remember being really impressed with the control room. And, um, yeah, it did feel like I was going to the end of the world. You forget how far away Cornwall way. is. You get to Exeter from, and you from think you're almost there and you realise you've only done half the <laughs> yes. journey. It's that really long bit. Now, you know, we've heard uh, about Charles's amazing uh, books. We should mention um, a book that we've got out very, very soon. And if you want to pre-order it, please do. It's from our partner podcast, the Supermassive podcast. It's called The Year in Space. And uh, it'll be out very shortly, um, end of October, I, I think that's right. It's got features that um, have been written by the two amazing presenters, Izzy Clark, Dr. Becky Smedhurst, uh, a certain guy called Richard Hollingham, yeah. um, yours truly, and Sarah Wilde. I'm, um, the, I'm the executive producer. Of the podcast, of the podcast. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those jobs. I essentially got to make up my own title. It's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? Okay. Really oh, can you not? I'd like to be creative director. Creative then, please. director. That, that, yes. that would be yeah. really good. Yeah, uh, I've written features on Artemis and um, Hidden Women of Astronomy, which I did enjoy researching because I discovered women that some of whom I'd heard about but didn't know much about, but most interesting of all from my point of view was some amazing women in history who've done incredible things with astronomy that I'd not heard about so uh, so yeah I enjoyed it what, what, what did you well, write about it remind me yeah again? so I've done a feature on interplanetary 
space travel, so mm. forward-looking, yeah. very forward-looking. Mm. Um, but I'm also rather proudly, because I've, I've been holding on to this interview for a while, um, when you've heard a few bits of it on Space Boffins, it's the interview I did with Gene Cernan, which we pretty certain is the last substantial and certainly last broadcast interview Gene Cernan did before he died. Um, so I've reproduced that in full. Uh, in the book, oh, that's great. It is. It's oh, really good. Sort of, so it's, know, it's a bit of an exclusive, really, yeah, to do that. And that's important as well in terms of history because he was a very good interview. Ian, yeah, wasn't he? and we're going to yeah. we'll include some of that interview. Maybe we'll we'll run it in full in Space Boffins in December. We're going to run a bit on that's the Supermassive podcast. That's a good, that's a good idea, well. actually, because yeah, we have we have run some. I say, We've run it's bits nice of it. that, yeah. that podcast listeners actually get something that. Yeah, you know other people. <laughs> so we, we've had. run bits of it before, and we used quite a bit in the space race, and that's why it was done originally. Mm. The space race, the Audible series, um, we made. Uh, but like a few most, years ago now. but like most things, you do these amazing interviews, and you usually have enough to make a a feature film yeah, on one so we, person. We did all these bits, and we, we jumped around a bit, yeah, but it would be lovely to to hear the whole thing. So yeah. we will we'll put the whole lot out in Space Boffins in December. Use a bit in the Supermassive podcast, but if you want to read it. With some excellent pictures with it. Oh, it does. We've seen the proofs, Mm. haven't they? It does look amazing. Lovely. So definitely pre order it if you love space. It'd be a great present for yourself and for Christmas, definitely. But it's um it's not just the year in space, it's it's just some really good Good face features good writing and some telescope on, yeah. telescope tips as well and what to see in the night sky because Supermassive is more more about astronomy. Yeah, because that's what the Royal Astronomical yeah. Society is. Now, we've been it? told to, to sort of build up, you know, to get people to pre-order. There's a reason for the pre-ordering, isn't there? Yeah, I didn't... I, I wish I'd sort of known about this when the Wally Funk book came out. Otherwise, I would have <laughs> told, I told to people it. pre-order it. But apparently, it's, it's really important for certain sites, whether it's, you know, Waterstones or Amazon or... or whatever because it gives it because it's all done on algorithms so if they suddenly see that a book is being massively pre-ordered they then put it sort of then generates its own sort of (laughs) publicity and it gets higher up the charts it makes them order more and then because they've ordered more they're more likely to sort of advertise it so it's it's sort of self-fulfilling so yeah Mm. it really say if only i'd know if only i know i know because i thought well Mm. you know like you i've got you know enough people to know how to get broadcasters interested Mm. in something because you know what makes them tick and also because you write about things you know what's the interesting stuff because you have to provide it to other people to editors uh uh, as well but yeah some things i i sort of hadn't hadn't quite clocked but then i suppose you have to be in the publishing industry to know all those little little tricks so hype it as much as you like yeah 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 it's, i think it's so. genuinely good it, well yeah i've the the bits i've read not just my book, <laughs> yeah. the bits i've read it's looks beautiful lovely. and it looks even if you never read it it looks lovely it looks amazing yeah. it's definitely one for the uh to hang around and uh dip into thanks very much to the uk space agency for supporting the podcast and for for all your kind comments on on facebook and uh and twitter and i'll stick up some pictures of goon hilly on facebook and twitter we also did uh some filming there that's why i was at goon hilly and it's a lovely lovely video and there's some amazing drone footage we captured oh, of goon hilly of, of goon hilly yeah mm. oh, that, so be fun. once that's published we'll share that as well Oh, super. And um, we, I suppose I can say sort of publicly, I've done it on Twitter, I think, already. But congratulations 
on winning that prize on your last film, Monsieur Hollingham. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. about the history of computers. Yes. For the, and that uh, can be seen in the Computer Museum yeah, so at if you, Cambridge. Yeah, it can it, be yeah. seen on YouTube. Uh, on YouTube so yeah. if you look up um, Leo... Um, as it's the world's first business computer. I think we called the film Leo, the mm. world's first business L-E-O, computer. Yeah. L-E-O, like world's first business computer. 25-minute uh, mini-documentary. Award-winning. Award-winning, yeah. But it's, it, yeah, really proud of it because it really showcases the people involved in this and it's just nice and it, momentous piece of and history. And it reminds me of when we went years ago to High Down, the High Down site in the Isle of Wight. So on the the south of the Isle of Wight, yes. Yeah, yeah. where you have this amazing history of UK space. Space rocketry, yeah. Yeah, Because where they tested the rockets when Britain used to have rockets. Yeah, when we, in fact, the one that did fly, but it flew from um, Woomer in in Australia. And we met all these lovely old old blokes <laughs> who are you know to towards the end of their careers and their lives actually because sadly quite a few of them have died since we you know interviewed them and it's so important to get these people when you can and and similarly with the sort of making computer history part of it it's just wonderful to to because one of the women i interviewed for it was about in her late 80s and she was sharp as sharp as hell she was she was great but it's crucial. Yeah, and I think and that's, same for that's the interesting thing actually about about Leo about the this history of this this computer, the world's first business computer is I mean we 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 obviously wanted to balance the film. We wanted a, a good mix of men and women in the film, but actually it wasn't that hard because women were involved right at the beginning and this is back in the 1950s of programming <laughs> this incredible machine. Well, look at Margaret Hamilton in the Apollo program. I mean, you know, this this goes across so many industries, doesn't it? That uh, it's funny it was only when uh it was deemed to be uh you know, an interesting men that uh that, uh, an interesting job that women were good at and then then somehow well actually there have been some really interesting articles about this about and books about about why women suddenly were felt pushed out or, or for whatever reason but yeah whether it's space or computing um whether you're male or female i think it's just let's you know not forget all those people who've come before political theory rocket launches, (laughs) history of computers. It's all in Space Boffins. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month.